This morning we're going to move through a sizable portion of the book of Romans. Last week we picked up speed just a little bit as Colin took us all the way through chapter 13. And this morning I'm going to move us through the chapter through chapter 14, but seven verses into chapter 15. That's not as long as some of the narrative passages that we've read together in the past. But it's Memorial Day weekend, and I wanted to give you a heads up. I want you to know that when I hit the chapter break and keep reading, you shouldn't panic about your barbecue plans for tomorrow or your family function this evening. It will still fit in our normal service of worship. Little worshipers and young disciples... Last week, Pastor Collins started us on the idea that in the church, we live by love. This morning, I want you to listen to our freedom. What do we do with our freedom? Not the freedom that we have because of where we live, but the freedom we have because we belong to Jesus. What do we need to do with the freedom that Jesus has given us? This is the good news of Jesus, the law and the fulfillment of Christ. Romans 14, 1 through 15, 7. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over his opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains... Pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, for the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded that in the Lord Jesus, nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for the mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. 
The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Father, you have given us your word and sacrament to preach the good news to us. We confess to you that we are people who need your good news. We need your mercy. We need the kiss of Jesus. We need your redemption, your grace. And you have called us to glorify you together in harmony with one voice. So this morning, would you change us by the hearing and believing of your word? You have welcomed us with open arms. So now we ask that you would give us hearts that welcome your words and lives that welcome one another. Father, in the face of our differences, in the face of our varied opinions, let us love each other more than ourselves. Let us find harmony. Let us find encouragement. In the gospel alone, let us find our hope. So now let us hear your words together and glorify you together with one voice. Amen. Would you be seated? I grew up about five blocks away from where Kara and I live now. And when I was young, there was only one other kid in my immediate neighborhood, anywhere close to my age. At least for several blocks on our side of Abrams, it was just the two of us. And so that meant that at this time of year when summer rolled around, we had to fill our days only playing with each other. At the time of year when everyone goes out and plays with the neighborhood kids, it was just Stefan Olson and me. We rode our bikes. We played pitiful two-man games of football. We played bad games on his 8-bit Sega. And fortunately, Stefan's family had a pool but you can only build an entire summer around one kid and his pool for so long. You can try to make it stretch for the entire summer, but even as a kid, you eventually get bored with the pool, and then you have to get creative. So one summer, we decided what we would do is dedicate ourselves to bike stunts. We had cheap, huffy bikes, and we were determined to perfect all the stunts that we could but we just kind of made them up. Nothing was cool. There were no ramps. They were just dumb, ill-advised ideas that started off with the line, you think if we timed it just right, we could. So one day we decided that the, the trick for the day would be to see if we could ride straight at each other as fast as possible and aim our front tires together so squarely that we bounced off of each other and rolled in a straight line backwards. 
So, being the planners that we were, we took a few practice runs, and we rode in straight lines as fast as we could in the alley where we were going to try it, and we laid out targets to see if we could run over each target successively, and it worked. So we set ourselves up in the alley, we pumped up our front tires as much as we could, we got about four to five houses apart in the alley, and we started off at the same time and pedaled as hard and as fast as we could. And in case you're wondering what the answer is to this little physics problem, the answer is yes. Two 10-year-olds can aim their bikes that precisely at high speed. But no, you don't bounce back gracefully. It's supposed to be graceful and linear, but it just kind of melts into this puddle of thudded skulls and limbs woven through bike spokes. We spent a lot of energy determining what we could do And it never occurred to us that our joy really depended more on what we should do. Last week we had submission and authority. And now we have Paul's treatise on Christian liberty. This passage doesn't just follow the submission and love passage. It's actually the rest of it. You can think of this as the continuation of Romans 13. In last week's passage we were submitting to worldly authority and fulfilling the law through love. This morning, in the context of liberty, we are loving one another by submitting to each other's consciences. Last week, Colin pointed out our citizenship, that we are Americans, Texans, and Dallasites, but that we are first and ultimately citizens of Christ's kingdom. And because of all of this, we belong to several stories In one of his sermons, Stanley Hauerwas said that individuals and peoples belong to a number of competing stories. We belong to the story of Western civilization, the Enlightenment, Southern culture, the American dream. We have made all of these things our stories, but as Christians, Jesus is recasting us in a new story. It's a story that's longer and better And it's progressively overwhelming the significance of anything else in all of our other stories. We are being made part of Jesus' story. And he gets to write it however he wants. Howard Wass is shorter than I am. He said all of that much shorter than I just did. And Kara will tell you that I tend to be wordy. Howard Wass never referred to the verses in our passage from 15 that talk about what was written in the past being for our encouragement being for our instruction, but he could have. Here we have it simply and beautifully. In 15.3, I try to say it often in RYF, I try to say it in Bible studies or on the floor when I lead worship, and I'll say it again from the pulpit. From beginning to end, Scripture tells us one story. If I could paraphrase, if I could paraphrase Paul here another way, I would say it like this. Scripture is not a story that tells us how to live our lives. It's not Aesop. It's not a collection of stories meant to teach us moral principles that we extrapolate and implement. The story of Scripture is the story that God has been telling from the beginning. And now He's telling it in us. His story continues in the church. And it's a story of a God who is completely free, but who is infinitely sacrificial in His love. We comprehend it summarily in Jesus, who in love became 
the sacrifice for us, but He did it freely. And now Jesus continues to write the same story in us. So when we come to these instructions in Romans 14, don't think of these like caveats to the gospel. It's all one story. Different churches and traditions tend to read through the scriptures in a number of ways, typically one of two ways. Either the Bible is a rule book that tells me what God wants me to do, or scripture is just a book of of doctrine. It tells me what to think and what to believe, and then what I do with that is something extra. It's something optional. Now, it really wouldn't be faithful to our tradition as Presbyterians, but I think we tend towards the second. We tend to think of Scripture as only a book of doctrine, and we whip out the word legalist to mean anyone who tells us something to do. We love the book of Romans because it's so doctrinal, but we really love chapters 1 through 11. And then we kind of get this practical epilogue in 12 through 16. As if these chapters and instructions are just afterthoughts, this is kind of like the post-it note that Paul left on the fridge to remind you to get milk and eggs while you're out. But our tradition has never believed this. Just the way we heard and said together a second ago as we prepare ourselves for the table. Did you see the list of things that we're supposed to consider? Joyfully and happily, did you read all of the things that you're supposed to consider through the week? Our sins and deficiencies, the truth and measure of our knowledge, faith, and repentance, the truth and reality of our love to God, our Christian brothers and sisters, charity to all people, unlimited forgiveness for anyone who does us wrong, our desires after Christ, our new obedience, and then renewing all of these things by serious meditation and fervent prayer. We said all of those. And none of it is legalism. It's not legalistic because we're not saying that we conjure these things up on our own to earn our way to the table. Jesus is bringing us to his table by giving us these things. We are diligent and reflective in it, but these are gifts. These are not tokens that we use to buy our way to communion. And in the same way, the good news, wherever we find it in Scripture is the same. It's the same whether we find it in doctrine or instruction, whether it's the first 11 chapters or the last five of Romans. They're only different in their emphasis, but not their substance. And this passage tells us the same thing about the way this section fits in Romans or the way Romans fits inside all of Scripture. It tells us very plainly that what was written in earlier times belongs to us for our instruction, and for our encouragement, and to give us hope. And all of these pieces fit together in one gospel story. God has written it in the pages of history, and now he's continuing to write it on the pages of his church. And so in this section, we just have more of the story. God writing his story in us. Not a list of random instructions, but a story of what love really looks like in the church. And like all good stories, it has a cast. Here the main characters are the stronger brother and the weaker brother. 
And their stage directions are always the same. They are love, patience, and glad acceptance. But as the church, we often try to rewrite this story. We normally hand it down in one of two versions. The first version is the simplest, but it's actually the most constricting. Here, everyone errs on the side of caution. And so we find the weakest conscience we can and we canonize it. Clear-cut and rule-governed, there are no gray areas in this version of the story. Because wisdom and discernment are heavy things. And it makes our heads tired and our backs hurt to use them. So everyone scowls, but we feel safe. Because we have rigid boundaries. And this story always ends the same way. Everything looks safe. Everything is labeled and safe, but everyone is scared that they might accidentally cross a boundary and fall into judgment. The second way we tell this story seems to be the most liberated, but this version is the harshest. In this version, we throw caution to the wind, not morally, but communally. The practices and attitudes aren't wrong in themselves, but we use them like clubs to beat up the timid. Being offended is their fault, and we know it, and so we tell them. Freedom and personal rights are our primary virtues in this this version, and we flaunt them like trophies. Everyone's smiling because no one feels tied down to anything. But our smiles are indifferent. We are glad to help you heal your wounds, but our tenderness is ham-fisted. And when we tell the stories in either one of these versions, the plots are different, but they are always played out on the same stage of self-love. And if we're going to learn the original and ideal version of this story, the one that Jesus is writing in his church, then there are several things we need to say about it. We need to understand what the differences of opinion are over, what is being said about the quality of faith in this passage, and what it actually means to grieve someone or make them stumble. Paul is dealing with matters of personal conscience and opinion, not gospel issues here. Paul uses specific examples like meat eating and wine drinking and feast day observances. And when Paul deals with gospel issues like people who demand circumcision from Gentiles or adultery in the church, he starts cursing and he excommunicates people. He's not afraid to call people by name and tell you that they're dogs or false teachers or that they've abandoned him. And here he talks about things in terms of opinion and freedom On these issues, what you do doesn't matter nearly as much as why you do it. So when Paul talks about strong and weak faith here, you shouldn't read it the way we read James' discussion of faith. This isn't a description of what is false and legitimate faith that will or will not save you. It's not the saving quality that's in view, it's the scope of the faith. Is it young faith? with narrow vision that's untrained? 
Or is it mature enough to see the breadth of freedom that Jesus gives? And so this means that grief and stumbling here are not the things that might cause us or cause someone else to fall away from the gospel. It's something more than just upsetting that person in the church with a decision they don't like. But in the passage, it's clear that causing a brother to stumble would mean encouraging someone to do something that runs against the grain of their conscience. It's flaunting our freedom in a way that pushes our brother or our sister past the limits of what his conscience will let him do. And so in both of the broken versions, people weak and strong are only interested in pleasing themselves. But that's not the story that Jesus wrote in himself. Jesus had the right to live without constraint. You know this. Jesus is the creator and the king of the entire creation. He has ultimate freedom in himself. He doesn't owe you anything, but he still didn't live at the edge of his rights. 15.3 reminds us that he didn't live to please himself. He didn't use his freedom to take what he wanted. He used his freedom to give us what we needed. He didn't exercise his rights just for the sake of exercising them, just because they were there. He always did it in love. He didn't heal on the Sabbath just to stick it to the man. He did it because his broken worshipers needed him to. And he didn't eat with prostitutes and drunkards to be edgy and relevant. He did it to redeem the needy and to show the proud their need. And in all of this, Jesus did more, far more than just show us how the story is supposed to go. In all of this, Jesus is actually rewriting our story. Because of his living and dying, Paul tells us that we now belong to Jesus. So we don't exist to please ourselves. But don't hear me say that this freedom isn't real. The freedom that Jesus gives is real freedom. But it's his freedom that he gives his people for his enjoyment. It's more than just the freedom to do certain things. It's actually the freedom to love each other in the church. As one commentator put it, you could summarize this whole section on freedom, ironically, in two complementary laws. The law of liberty and the law of love. So yes, this is the question that most people bring to this passage. So in case you're wondering, here are the answers. This passage does mean that you are equally free to drink wine or not. Eat meat or don't. Selectively decide holiday celebrations. Go to the movies or don't. Join any political party you want or don't. Own a television, dance, smoke cigars, play poker, listen to the radio, or don't. But it all has to be done in love. Thankfully, you belong to Christ, and this means 
that you're going to have to consider those around you that belong to him before you dive headlong into your own freedom. If you're with us in the theater this morning, but you're not sure what to make of the church and all that it claims about Jesus, don't make the mistake that we so often do. Don't get bogged down in the particulars of what it sounds like you can or can't do. That's still never been the point of this passage for us or for you. But there is a question in here. Does the freedom that Jesus offers sound like real freedom? Can you imagine a freedom that joyfully belongs to and lives for a Savior and His people? I'm related to a man named Lee. And to be honest, I've never really understood how I'm related to him. I know it's by marriage. I think it's to my father's cousin. So you can sort that out however you want. I'm sure people will correct me later. I think he's a second cousin, but the long and the short of it is we're family. Lee was a Baptist pastor in Texas, and he is one of the friendliest men I've ever known. But he was always sincere. Some people are friendly because it's fun. And oddly enough, I've met a lot of older pastors who sort of turn on this public personality whenever they're in public situations to kind of get through. But Lee was never like that. He was actually always sincere and loving and gentle and happy. He was also one of the most straight-laced men I have ever known. And that sounds a little bit like an insult, especially in our context, but it's not. I just don't know any other way to say it. Like his friendliness, it was also sincere. He didn't do it for show. And he never beat anyone up with it. But he was very, very straight and narrow all around. It wasn't until after Lee died that I ever knew Lee had a tattoo. He had a huge tattoo that wrapped around his forearm. He'd gotten it in the Navy. And when he got out, he pastored and belonged to a tradition and a small church culture that said that was sinful. And so, and I mean this literally, he never wore long sleeves again. He didn't buy them. He didn't own them. I know it sounds silly, but think about what that means, pastoring in Texas. He mowed the lawn in a dress shirt. He went to family picnics and church picnics and all of the events long-sleeved. He sat by the pool and watched his kids swim, wearing long sleeves. He sweated through everything. And we might disagree with where Lee identified sin. Many of you have tattoos. To put my cards on the table, I like tattoos. I've complimented many of yours, and I was sincere. If I told you I liked it, I did. And I'm not saying that you should not wear short sleeves. I don't think they're sinful. And again, I know this sounds like a small thing, but I think Lee told me one of the best versions of Jesus' story I ever heard. If we had to label him from the passage, it would be hard to do. We might say that his opinion sounds more like the weaker brother. But he put himself under the directions given to the stronger brother. 
without complaining and without any air of martyrdom. Lee always limited his own rights and his own convenience for the sake of others. And when we read this passage, I've preached it a certain way on purpose. I've not given you a detailed explanation of what you can and can't do. Because we tend to fixate on freedom and whether a given practice is right or wrong and what makes it right or wrong and how we know and how we should tell other people whether they're right or wrong. And when I tell Lee's story, some of you probably want to argue about his decisions. But I'll go ahead and tell you that he wins the argument every time. Not because he's better at rhetoric, but because he loved the church simply and on purpose. Christ has given us real freedom. And it's a freedom that we don't use to please ourselves because thankfully, we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to a kind Savior. And this is how Jesus lived and died for you as His church. Amen.